0: The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Former Federal Conservative Cabinet Minister Jason Kenney was elected Alberta's new premier this past Tuesday. Kenney's United Conservative Party won a majority over Rachel Notley and the New Democrats in Alberta's provincial election. In his victory speech, he urged the rest of Canada to support his province's energy sector, which includes the need for a pipeline. Kenny also referenced Canada's other Conservative premiers, including Ontario's Doug Ford, in building solidarity. One of the first items of business for Jason Kenney is to scrap Alberta's homegrown carbon tax and to file a formal court challenge of the federal carbon tax no later than April 30th. Libby Nimer hosted a panel of expert political strategists, liberal Bob Richardson, the NDP's Tom Parkin and conservative John Mikatishan.
2: I think it's a
0: rather stellar um, that having uh, played with the experiment of the NDP, you no know, malice has returned to uh, um, Alberta. And uh, Jason Kenney is going to be the number one person uh, helping uh, elect a new government in Ottawa this fall.
3: Sounds like them's fighting words, Tom Parkin. <laughs> How do you see this?
4: Not an unexpected result. Uh, we saw the polls, but we also saw you know a fair bit of growth from... Uh, Rachel Notley's team I think history will be kind to her Uh, dealt a very bad hand in the huge decline in oil prices which had a huge impact on the Alberta economy and she protected people from the cuts to healthcare and cuts to education you know firing of teachers and nurses and people like that who care for us that was the kind of cuts that were being advocated uh, when she won by the conservative uh, government at that time We've seen this game before. I, 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 I think it's uh, going to be when we start looking back that Rachel Notley did a lot of right things in a hard time, and uh, Mister Mr., um, Mr., Mister Mister Kenny, uh, in in contrast, might be regarded as a little bit uh, overly harsh in his economic plan. I hope Ms. Notley hangs around because I think she she could be a premier again in Alberta.
3: Bob Richardson, are the Liberals shaking in their boots today? Oh, I don't think so. But first
2: and foremost, congratulations to Jason Kenny. I happen to have known him for 30 years. And whether you like or dislike him, I got to say this is a hardworking guy. In the last three years, he has, you know, left being a member of parliament, uh, run for a party leadership, merged two parties. Ran for that leadership, won a by-election, and now a general election. Uh, this guy's work ethic isn't for the uh, for the faint of heart, and he should be given uh, full marks. I think he's got a clear mandate on the economy. Uh, I think uh, this election was decided on the economy. I think every everything else was pretty much a sideline issue. And I think, you know, uh, he will already probably have his eye on the next election. The next election in Alberta will be decided in Calgary. Uh, he'll hold all those rural seats. The NDP will do well in, uh, in Edmonton. And, uh, so he's got to really get the economy moving, uh, throughout Alberta, but particularly in Calgary. Ultimately, it's up to the voters to decide, and the voters have decided. They want a certain party running the federal government. We'll see if they're reelected in whatever it is five months. Uh, I believe they probably will be. I think he'll get between 160 and 185 seats. That's my prediction. There you go. We're uh, writing that and down. And they've and they've uh, and they've elected uh, a number of governments across the province. You work mm-hmm. with them when you can. And when you can't, you move forward where you have the jurisdictional responsibility to do stuff. And you try to get as much stuff done on, on the clock while you have responsibility. I, I just don't think it's that, a compli- uh, that complicated. Here's another thing that will happen over the next year or two. Um, these guys who have been in campaign mode for the last uh, few years, um, all of a sudden will have responsibilities to govern and they'll also have responsibilities, and they'll also be responsibilities for, um, for uh, provincially, how are you doing with our health care? How are you doing with education? How are you doing uh, creating jobs? Uh, what are you doing to, uh, how are our roads? All of a sudden, they're going to, uh, instead of yapping at the federal government uh, and the prime minister uh, uh, every 15 minutes, they're going to have, there's going to be a degree of accountability for their performance. So let's see how they do over the next year or two, because uh, they've got to step up to the plate and do some things in their their own jurisdictions, too, as well.
1: You've been listening to our panel of political experts, Bob Richardson, Tom Parkin and John McAttishan. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fightback. This past week, members of Toronto's Board of Health voted unanimously to ask City Council to push the provincial government to stop planned changes to public health across Ontario. Doug Ford's PCs want to reduce the number of health units to 10 from 35 and reduce spending by $200 million a year. Robert Kyle is the president of the Association of Local Public Health Agencies and says the numbers just don't add up because boards are on the front line. Line of chronic and infectious diseases and manage food safety and immunization. The premier has defended the move by claiming amalgamated boards will better respond to public health emergencies. Libby spoke with Joe Mahavik, former chair of the Toronto Board of Health, to get his take on the situation.
5: $200 million represents just under 27% of the total budget for the province of Ontario that they devote to public health. And in Toronto alone, it will be somewhere around, if you, if you just drill down the percentages, it'll be something like $40 million, which is a very, very big hit. Something's going to go. Things are going to be cut. And this is not the time, especially if you are conscious, uh, really conservative around money issues. Public health is not where you cheap out. Public health saves you money down the road. So if you uh, get the flu shots now, is that what they're going to cut? Have to cut? Then you, the uh, hospitals and doctors actually save money down the line by not having to tend to you when you are, uh, when you do have fluid, flus and uh, when you might indeed be uh, hospitalized. So this really is a, a case of being penny wise and pound foolish or another expression that we sometimes use is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure so if you're getting rid of that ounce of prevention you're going to be spending it down the line this is one of those pay me now or pay 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 me later when we didn't do that we lost ability to to kick SARS quickly as quickly as we could have should have and one of the learnings that came out of this very important uh, David Naylor report after SARS was that you need to strengthen the province of Ontario, your structures around public health, because if an infectious disease starts to hit and you don't have the right people who understand infectious disease, how it spreads, how it's contained, then you're going to put the people of Ontario at risk.
3: People are saying this magnitude of cuts can lead to another Walkerton. Walkerton was caused by two guys running water filtration and not doing it properly. How could the lack of public health contribute to that? Draw the connection for me.
5: Yeah. so uh, the public health uh, and and environment inspectors, but public health inspectors inspect the quality of of water that comes out of the pipes. And if it isn't a standard, then uh, basically an order is issued to clean up your act. Now, uh, you know, how often do you do those inspections? I'm not sure how often we do it. In the case of Toronto, I know the restaurant system uh, uh, better. It's three times for a restaurant and two times uh, for a dining room um, in, a say, for example, a senior's home, and then once a year for um, a food, uh, a grosseteria. Um, And so let's say you cut your budget in half, then you're going to basically... Be reducing your your service your inspection level by by half, and then at the end of the day, people are people who are not following good protocols around cleanliness around safety are going to uh, eventually result in the, the food not being uh, well served. Uh, and the same principle would apply in a case like uh, like Walkerton. Walkerton is a and Walkerton and SARS uh, that happened really fifteen years ago, uh, fifteen to twenty years ago. Those were some of the drivers in that David Naylor report that I mentioned before, uh, when he said, uh, "You got you, you folks better up your game around public health because when the diseases happen and you're not ready, uh, you're going to cause a, a all kinds of chaos uh, if you don't uh, if you don't have a public health structure strong and in place." And so, what the province did was it increased funding from fifty percent of the budget for public health to 75% of the budget so that no municipality would be tempted to uh, cheap out on public health expenditures. Basically, that's the Doug Ford narrative that uh, that government is fat, it's got to trim at the waist, and, and uh, you just got to cut, 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 and that no one should be immune from it. And I think you want to do it as a surgeon and not with a big ax. <laughs> and doing it as a surgeon um, uh, not to overplay that metaphor, but uh, you would want to do it carefully. You don't want to, if you, if you do have to cut a dollar, it is actually more prudent to cut a dollar on the health care side, primary health, acute uh, health care, than it is in public health. You get a better health outcome if you do it with that precision. That's that's my my, my point here. I'm not arguing for... Uh, fat government, skinny government, I'm arguing for right-sized government to be able to protect the health of uh, Ontarians.
1: That was Joe Mehevick, former chair of Toronto's Board of Health. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Was Doug Ford trying to poke the bear, so to speak, when he told teachers not to engage in strike nonsense? His words, telling them they have a good deal with three months of holidays and the best benefits and pensions in the country. Government representatives could start bargaining with union negotiators for teachers whose contracts expire at the end of August by the end of this month. The premier's plea came as the Peel District School Board said some 360 teachers may no longer have permanent positions come the new school year. While this does not necessarily mean all notified will be laid off, it could indicate higher than usual job losses in frontline education. On Wednesday, Libby spoke with Stephen Tufts, associate professor at York University, along with the president of the Ontario Teachers Federation, Diane Dewing.
2: I know here in Peel Region, we've worked very closely with our community partners to ensure that we are delivering an efficient service. We've participated in lean exercises with the hospitals. We've experienced cost avoidance of close to $7 million a year through efficiencies we've developed in the offload delay process. And those partnerships are only possible on the local level. Um, the number that we're hearing is that there's going to be 10 big operators. And we're just not certain that those sort of integrations can can happen Um when you're dealing with such a a
3: massive entity. Chris Buckley.
0: I would suspect that workers are nervous at this point. There is a lot of details that haven't been announced, but I think it's important to remember when Doug Ford was elected as premier, he made a statement on numerous occasions that no workers will lose their jobs. Well, that hasn't been true. We've lost jobs in the healthcare sector announcements again today in the education sector. You know, when we look at the paramedics, uh, sector of our economy, going down from 59 services to 10. Uh, People have to remember uh, this this will affect dispatchers as well. Dispatchers who know their communities very well, that helps on response times. And in my hometown, you know, the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, made a statement that it could hire more uh, ambulance attendants and paramedics. Well, they need to take a look at that instead of any possible reductions because in my hometown, Lake Ridge Health, Oshawa, Yesterday alone, there was 17 ambulances lined up at the side of the facility waiting to unload their patients. That's the state of our healthcare system, and I'm fearful that this could be the first step in privatization of the paramedic services across this province, and people should be questioning our government. Once again, here's a hidden item in the report that came out last week, the financial budget, and workers' jobs are on the line. So I I would suspect workers in this sector will be nervous, and unions that represent them are waiting for all the details because people should be nervous.
3: Let's bring in Professor Stephen Tufts. I think that the overarching theme in all of this is... uh, A big centralization and elimination of administration, and they keep saying we are going to keep the front line intact. Is that uh, a good idea? Has that worked elsewhere?
6: Well, I think what's got workers nervous this time is that memories aren't so short to forget what amalgamation means uh, for workers when the province decides to force municipalities to amalgamate any kind of a range of services. And what I think is really, I think, in the back of many workers' minds is that if you amalgamate these services and remove the local uh, special expertise in dispatching is that who gets to benefit from this? Are the rural areas going to be uh services going to be sacrificed as are as big uh urban municipalities are get the bigger seats at the table from these amalgamated services? And also, is this really just paving the, the gray, uh, way for something else? Maybe not privatization, although we know that Ford has been spoken uh, very much in favor of privatization services, because right now it's a shared cost uh, um, between municipalities and the province. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of questions here uh, that need to be raised. And also just the pace and how these uh, policy changes are made without consultation and so quickly and catches everybody by surprise, surprise. So I think there's a, a lot to be concerned about here.
1: That was Stephen Tufts, associate professor at York University and the president of the Ontario Teachers Federation, Diane Doing. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Pharmacists in Ontario could be given new powers to treat patients and prescribe medication for common ailments. The initiative, part of the recent provincial budget, is meant to save time and money for patients. Zoomer Media friend, pharmacist John Papasturgio, was in studio with me when I filled in for Libby on Thursday to discuss what this will mean for pharmacists and patients.
7: We've been waiting for this, and we're actually one of the the last provinces to have this ha- kind of happen. It's something that's, uh, you know been taking place in Nova Scotia, for example, for over five years now. So it's uh, pharmacists have experience uh, nationally with this. Uh, uh, it's exciting to see it come to Ontario. I think uh, um, it's going to be great for the patients, great for the pharmacists. And really, you know, we're there, we're accessible, we're trained to do this already. Um, we might as well use those skills.
1: As as patients, as consumers, uh, why should we feel confident in a pharmacist's ability to diagnose us, like in terms of education versus uh, the doctor's education? So, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we could start with the, the education the new kind of,
7: uh, uh pharmacists are getting. They got a doctorate in pharmacy. So it's called the PharmD. They're very well trained in therapeutics and assessing conditions. You have to realize we're actually diagnosing all the time. We do it for over the counter products. Uh, patients will come in with symptoms, uh, and we're, you know, we're trained to assess them. Um, if a, if a pharmacist isn't sure they're not going to be guessing be you know behind the counter if we're talking about more complicated conditions they're going to refer those off and I think that's part of our training as well to kind of be able to recognize hey this is something I know with certainty it's something we can manage uh, here in the pharmacy or this may be something more complicated more sinister let's refer it off and that's part of that educational process and they're they're really trained to do that so I think for the conditions that you're going to be seeing your pharmacist uh, for you have you should have absolutely Absolutely no worry, we should be able to manage it without any problem.
1: So the health minister this morning, Christine Elliott, was talking about this very That's thing. Right. Uh, and she says, and you just referred to it, that it it will have a positive impact on ERs and so-called hallway medicine. You agree with that? Absolutely.
7: I mean, I see it almost every day. And, and and we definitely see it after hours. So uh, you think of my pharmacy, for example, we're open till midnight. There's a pharmacist there till midnight. And they're seeing patients or fielding calls. People are coming in and out. Giving us that advanced scope allows us to address These things, I almost feel bad when you're, you know, you're sending a, you know, a a mom with a, uh, you know, a young kid, something that's very manageable, uh, to urgent care to the ER on a Friday night. You know, the wait time is going to be, you know, six hours there, Um, and it's just adding to the workload of the physicians. I think. yeah, it's, it's it's something we could do. It's something we've been trying to do. We do it for a lot of uh, conditions that we have options for because there's a lot of things available over the counter already, and we try to manage uh, uh, with those medications. But having access to the prescription medications opens up to a door to a, a lot of different conditions. Think of something as uh, minor as a UTI for most women. They, they know what it is. They come in, they say, I have a UTI. I've had it before. It's a UTI for sure. I don't have a serious fever or anything like that. It's a simple antibiotic, and we're having there's great evidence coming out of Alberta, Nova Scotia, some of these other provinces that pharmacists have been able to have a huge impact, right? Because we're able to get the patient treated quicker, they're on that antibiotic, their symptoms resolved before it has to escalate to something more serious. Because uh, a lot of times they wait, they don't want to go to the ER, so they're waiting two days before they get treated and it could it could get become something worse.
1: We talk about the evolution of pharmacy, the evolution of healthcare. Uh, whether you agree with the Ford PC's philosophies and, and the way they're they're operating certainly, you have to agree with the idea of evolution that things Absolutely. need to change uh, in order to uh, quickly assess and and prescribe and treat people. Absolutely,
7: I think people want to get uh, you know help quicker. They want you know their issues resolved faster in this historical kind of way of. Waiting constantly for service, I think that's got to change. And uh, it's being driven by the patients. They're demanding this type of access to care. And I think we've got well-trained healthcare providers that are, are you know, eager, especially the new grads. They're like eager to do this type of work. Let's let them do it and take the load off the dock so they could focus on the more, you know. So they
1: enjoy that. They enjoy the diagnosing oh, part they, of yeah, it.
7: They don't want to dispense. My new, like the new grads, they're not trained to dispense. Like uh, robots do that now, right. right? So they've been trained as primary health care providers providers. They want to come to work and be able to help patients and improve patient outcomes. And I think that's what we're going to see in community pharmacies. All that other stuff that you're seeing, next five years, it's going to be gone. Dispense is going to be totally automated. It's a, a thing of the past, I think.
1: That was pharmacist John Papasturgio. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Dave in Toronto phoned in as a trained professional frontline worker. He gave his opinion on the amalgamation of the various health care systems like paramedics.
0: I spent 37 years in 911, 30 of them with paramedic services here in the province. And my comment would be the first thing the province needs to do is get out of the 911 dispatching business. Having provincial employees dispatch, uh, regional or municipal, uh, paramedic services is absolutely archaic. Um, the, they're two silos that never, they never get together to discuss issues. And, uh, we should let these regions, Uh, dispatch their own resources and be 100% responsible for both of the vital components of emergency call taking and paramedic response.
1: Carol from Kingston phoned to tell us how she feels about Premier Doug Ford.
2: I am so concerned about how terrible this province is going to be at the end of his four years. He's arrogant, and his people can't speak unless he lets them, and no doubt he writes
1: whatever they're allowed to say. So we're in the soup. That's where we are. Dave in Brampton called to share his take on Premier Doug Ford's thinking when it comes to the carbon tax.
2: Doug Ford canceled what Wynne had, and I didn't notice any difference in the cost when Wynne put it in. Maybe it was, but I never noticed it. And I think he's just got a vendetta against everybody that doesn't think like Ford.
1: Sim in Toronto offered up a suggestion on who should be subject to the carbon tax rather than consumers.
0: I think that the carbon tax is
2: ridiculous. What the government should be doing is putting a tax on the manufacture of equipment that uses up a lot of energy unnecessarily.
0: I see people driving all these big uh, SUVs. I drive a Corolla. It goes along, it doesn't cost a lot, doesn't burn a lot of gas, tax the
2: manufacturer and put a tax on the licenses. So people won't want to
0: buy that type of equipment.
1: Bill in Toronto phoned to remind us what the Walkerton water crisis should have taught us.
0: As far as Walkerton goes... There's there's government at its very best. You had nepotism there. I think the two yeah. employees you were referring to, one yep. was the manager, and I think the other one that was testing the water was his brother-in-law. Yep. When I look back at SARS, that's a one-off that's never, ever happened, and the City of Toronto should be proud the way they handled that. I, this is ridiculous to, to go talk about Walkerton and SARS because we have to have cutbacks. It's time to rein government in and 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 bring it back to reality. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: Great calls as always, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Bob in Etobicoke, who expressed what the tragic Notre Dame Cathedral fire has made him realize.
2: When I was watching the fire, what I, I realized that France has had a lot of problems recently. And I'm watching this fire, and I'm thinking, now the people there have got something in common. It is given the French people something in common that they all support, whether they're Catholic or whether they're not. Everybody likes history they like to maintain they want to see something that was there yesterday it'll be there tomorrow it'll be there for their grandkids
1: that does it for this week's best of fight back on zoomer radio if you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback.
0: The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Ecock, and Kelly Robotham.